it's good to be king. Right? That, that line was written in the year 700 B.C. by Homer. It's good to be king. And that line and that truth has been repeated again and again, whether, whether it's spouted by Louis XVI in a movie by Mel Brooks or whether it's sung by Tom Petty or whether, whether Simba, the little, the little lion, just tells us that he just can't wait to be king. It's good to be king as children, right? We pretend to be princes and princesses. As adults, we think, what would it like to be a, what would it be like to be king? to be queen. And we really don't have a good picture of that, do we? In this age of democracy where, where there really aren't kings and queens, the best picture we get is probably the royal family in England. That's probably not that great of a picture, right? But it sure does look good. You don't have to do a whole lot, it looks like, and you get to be really rich and famous. If you can put up with, with cameras in your face all the time, it's a pretty good time to be king. I'm not sure it's always been that way hasn't always been good to be king because throughout history when kings really ruled having that top position right that top position of wealth and power and authority brought with it all kinds of glory all kinds of power right and it also brought with it all kinds of paranoia because there's somebody there's always somebody who wanted to be king who wanted to take you down. Thinking about that, I was reminded as a kid, this winter weather has reminded me of when we used to play King of the Hill. I don't know if any of you ever did this when you were younger. King of the Hill. We, we lived on the end of a, 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 not really a cul-de-sac, but there was a big rounded area with the houses there. And so every winter, when the snow would fall in Muskegon, where I grew up in, there was always a lot of snow, the front end loader would come and make a huge pile of snow. And King of the Hill was really quite a simple game. You just found the, the highest pile of snow that you could find, and somebody stood on top, and everybody else tried to take him down. No rules. That's o the only rule is just take him down any way possible. And we got pretty violent playing King of the Hill, right? And we tumbled down to that ash vault too many times, which probably explains a lot of my uh, empty thinking sometimes. Too many hits on the head playing King of the Hill. Any way you could take them down, grab their legs, shove, push, tackle, gang up on them, take them down. Because you wanted to be the one standing on the top. You wanted to be the king of that hill. Right? It was frightening. <laughs> Honestly, it was frightening to be king. Or maybe the best picture we have that t today is of the dictators around the world, right? Look at North Korea, King Young Un, right? He, he, he executes anybody who comes close, anybody who gets too much power because he's scared. He's scared that somebody's going to take his position from him, take his power from him. Look at, look at Robert Mugabe, direct dictator of Zimbabwe, right? After 37 years, somebody got too close, somebody took too much power, and now he's out. He's gone. Yeah, okay, being king brings a whole bunch of benefits. It also brings a whole lot of paranoia. At Christmas, that we're wrapping up, right, this Christmas season, at Christmas we celebrate a king. And we celebrate a kingdom. 
Jesus, this, this baby in a manger, right? We're seeing him as a baby for this whole month, for all these weeks. This baby in a stable whose arrival we celebrated on Monday is a king who has come to claim his kingdom. The only problem is there already was a king who thought the kingdom was his. The king's name back in those days was Herod. Herod the Great. Herod was king of this little corner of the world called Israel. And it was good for Herod to be king. Being king brought him wealth and power beyond what you and I can comprehend in our lives. And it also brought Herod, like every other king, fear and paranoia. Herod lived with this constant fear for his kingdom. You see, he was not the rightful king of Israel. We know that kingships, rightful kings, is a lineage. It's, it's identified by blood. It's a family trait, right? It gets passed down from generation to generation. Only Herod had no royal blood within him. He was a king who was appointed by the Roman Senate. He was a puppet of the Roman Empire who was hated by the people of Israel that he ruled because they saw him for the fraud that he was. So, in this Christmas story that we know so well, the wise men, they come, remember what they're looking for? They're looking for a king. They're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod is scared. Take out your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew 2. You want to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at another passage in Matthew later on in, in our time together as well. So Matthew chapter 2. What we find here. In this visit of the Magi that we often see as kind of quaint and pretty and cute. What it really is is a clash of two kingdoms. Two kingdoms coming head to head. Start with me verses 1 through 18 of Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. There's a, the first king introduced, right? Actually the second. Jesus came in earlier. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. 
Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for this child and kill him. To kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's pretty obvious that Herod here is scared. There's a rightful king who is coming to reclaim his kingdom. There was someone from the line of David, the royal line, who was going to expose him for the fraud that he was and take away his throne, his power, his wealth, take away his kingdom. He didn't know it at the time, but this coming king's name was Jesus. So he recruits these wise men, right? These, these philosophers, these leaders from the east to unknowingly be his spies. They're to find this newborn king. They're to come and report back to him so that he might go worship him. He had no intention of worshiping him. He was going to kill him. But instead of supporting Herod's kingdom, God gives these wise men a call, right? A Christmas call through a dream. And they subvert his kingdom instead. God gives them this Christmas call. He sends his message to them. And instead of going back to Herod, instead of supporting Herod's kingdom, they leave by another route. They escape. They sneak away. Without providing Herod the information he needs, they become a part of the resistance, right? The resistance force standing against Herod and standing for this newborn king. And sadly, Herod's kingly paranoia immediately kicks into full gear. And he's scared enough to execute baby boys. Every baby boy to and under in Bethlehem. Herod's scared. Because the arrival of the rightful king means the end of his kingdom. Satan is scared at Christmas time. Satan is scared as well for the exact same reason. Satan the prince of darkness, the prince of this world, knows that he's an imposter. Right? He knows that this earth, this world, rightly belongs to Jesus. Right? This planet, this land, this water, these people, you and I, 
everything rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ who created it and who owns it. And Satan, this imposter king, stole it. And he knew that the arrival of Jesus, the rightful king, means the end of his kingdom here on earth. We know that Satan certainly has power today. We feel it. We feel the pain. We feel the brokenness. We experience the temptation and the sin. We know that he's got great power in this creation, but he is not and never will be the rightful king. He's the prince of darkness, but he is not the king of this world. The royal bloodline is God's. And this coming King Jesus on Christmas Day signals the return of the rightful king to claim his kingdom. But the truth is, just like Herod, just like Herod was not going to go down without a fight, and just like Herod was going to do whatever it took to hold on to his kingdom, to hold on to his power, to hold on to his wealth, even if it meant killing baby boys. Satan's not going to go down without a fight either. You know, as wonderful as Christmas is, and as much as we have created it to to, to be a warm, fuzzy feeling holiday, And as much as we've declared Christmas to be the most wonderful time of the year, right? We need to realize that Jesus' birth that we celebrate at Christmas, this baby in a manger, signals the start of a deadly conflict. It signals the start of a battle between two kings in two kingdoms. And that never happens without great cost. And I'm not talking about the battle between Herod and Jesus here. Herod goes down as a footnote in history, right? For all of his greatness, and he is honored and revered despite his cruelty, he's a footnote in this greater story, the greater battle, the greater kingdom. And I'm not being overly dramatic. When I say that this is a battle between celestial powers over the fate and the future of this whole creation, over the fate and the future of eternity, Jesus arrives as a baby to do battle against the illegitimate power of darkness and to reclaim his kingdom from Satan himself. And if you skip in your Bibles from Matthew 2, where we get to meet Jesus as a baby, back to Matthew 20, where Jesus is is fully engaged in battle. You get to hear Jesus' battle plan. Okay, Jesus came as a baby to do battle against the kingdom of Satan, to reclaim his rightful kingdom. How is he going to do that? What does that look like? Well, in verses 17, 18, 19 of Matthew 20, Jesus and his disciples are going up to Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem, the capital city of this kingdom, the center of power and control. Jerusalem, where there is a palace, where there is a throne, where where rightful kings sit. He's going there with his disciples, and on the way, he pulls them aside, and he lets them know the battle plan. Here's here's our plan. Listen to verses 17, 18, and 19. 
It says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And on the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, wait a minute here. This isn't the way that the plot is supposed to go. Right? This isn't how rightful kings are supposed to return to claim their thrones. The story is supposed to be written like this, right? The, the rightful king comes to take his throne back from the evil imposter and he rallies support and he gains followers and he consolidates his power and he leads this troop into battle against overwhelming odds and yes some people will fall but the king will live and he will be victorious and he will claim his throne again this plan that Jesus shares right here doesn't make any sense it's not what the disciples expected it's not what we expect but that's exactly Jesus' point Jesus' whole point to his disciples here and his point to you and me today is that he is bringing a different kind of kingdom here. Jesus came on that first Christmas morning. And, and he lived here on this earth in order to reclaim his lost kingdom. But he doesn't do that through swords and spears and blood. He doesn't do that on the battlefield. He reclaims his kingdom through his own blood on the cross. He reclaims his kingdom by giving his own life away. It's a different kind of king because he's ushering in a different kind of kingdom. And here in Matthew 20, his disciples just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to them. They're still thinking crowns. They're thinking thrones. They're thinking power. They're thinking prestige. They're thinking Jerusalem palace. They're thinking Herod. So in verses 20 through 23, the very next paragraph there, the mother of James and John pulls Jesus aside. And, and, and he asks, she asks, can, can my two boys please sit on either side of you? Hey, can, will you give them positions of power and authority in your kingdom? It's as, if, it's as if the people around them didn't even hear what he said. His disciples just didn't get it. They didn't even hear Jesus' humble battle plan. So Jesus calls the 12 of them together again. He huddles them up one more time to explain his kingdom. Listen to what he says starting in verse 25. It says, Jesus called them together and, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This radically different kind of king brings in a radically different kind of kingdom 
in a radically different kind of way. Jesus doesn't come carrying swords and spears. He doesn't raise up warriors to fight on a battlefield. Jesus, here he says he's going to reclaim his kingdom with two weapons. And his sword is service. That's his sword, it's service. Jesus' great battle plan to reclaim his kingdom here on this earth is to give himself away in service. Verse 28 says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. This kingdom is reclaimed by kindness. Crazy. His kingdom comes through kindness. Read through the stories of Jesus' life. You won't read about swords and battles and armies and force. You'll read about lepers being healed and about lame men walking again. You'll read about guilty people being forgiven and set free instead of being stoned for their sin. You will read about little children being pulled up onto his lap. You will read about hungry people being fed and blind people being given their sight. You will read about a band of disciples who are challenged to give themselves away, not challenged to fight. And the one time that one of them pulls out a sword, Jesus says, put that away. That's not what my kingdom is about. You'll read about a three-year ministry where Jesus served, where he gave himself away, and where for three years he raised up people around him and taught them to serve and to give themselves away. That's how the rightful king returns, as a servant. That's how Jesus reclaims his kingdom here on earth. His sword is service, and his spear is sacrifice. Right? The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know the story. Right? The Easter story, the Good Friday story. Jesus didn't march up to Jerusalem, this capital city, this kingly city. He didn't march up to it with an army. He walked into the heart of enemy territory with a ragtag band of disciples riding on a donkey. He didn't march up to the royal palace and confront Herod the king and shake his fist at him. <coughs> he didn't march forward to the palace to claim his throne. He walked into Jerusalem and offered himself to be arrested. Allowed himself to be beaten beaten beyond recognition. He stepped forward to claim his place not on a throne but on a cross. That's God's kingdom plan. The king will return to claim his rightful kingdom and he'll do it through service and he'll do it through sacrifice. Different kind of kingdom and a different kind of king. And you know what? That wasn't a battle that was just fought 2,000 years ago. It's a battle that's still being fought today. You and I, today, are called by God, given this Christmas call, to be soldiers in the front lines, 
ushering in the return of the king and the return of his kingdom. Christmas is nice. It's wonderful, and we love to celebrate this warm, fuzzy picture of Jesus being born in a baby. We like mangers, and we like stars, and we like all that Christmas stuff. That's fine, but Christmas doesn't mean a thing. Christmas doesn't mean a thing if that baby in a stable doesn't become our king. Christmas doesn't mean a thing if we're pledging our allegiance to a baby and not a king. Christmas does not mean a thing if the return of the rightful king doesn't bring you and doesn't bring me to the front lines of the battle. Our king has returned to rightfully claim what is his. He has come to reclaim this world. He has come to reclaim your heart and your life that Satan has stolen. He has come to reclaim your home and your family and your neighborhood and your company and your co-workers and your school and your classmates. He has come to reclaim every inch of this creation that Satan has stolen but rightfully belongs to him. The king has returned. And the return of the king in our lives and in our community and in our world depends on you and I being willing, like the wise men, to be subversive. Are we willing to be subversive in this world and in this time and in this community? Are we willing to subvert the false kingdoms of this world in order to usher in the kingdom of God? God's Christmas call to you and I today is to daily subvert the kingdoms of this world for the cause of Jesus Christ. To subversively chip away to chip away at the foundations and the priorities that this world says are important. To, to pick up the weapons of Jesus' kingdom and to do battle today. Because Jesus' kingdom will come here on this earth in literal powerful ways through service and sacrifice. Some of you have experienced that. You have seen the kingdom of God come as you have served and as you have sacrificed. You've seen his kingdom come as you've built a house in Guatemala or restored a home destroyed by a hurricane. You've seen his kingdom come as you served dinner downtown to the homeless or as you've raked leaves or as you've volunteered in an inner city school or as you've been a foster parent. You've seen his kingdom come have you, as you've cooked a meal for our family promise guests or our alpha guests, as you drove someone to the doctor, as you've held a child on your lap, as you've taught them the love of God. You've seen the kingdom of God come as you've built a ramp or delivered a Thanksgiving basket or given some kind of unexpected gift because that's how the kingdom of God will come. Not through battles, not through guns, not through laws and legislation, not through power, not through force. Our king returns when you and I serve. Our king returns as you and I sacrifice. Right? Jesus gave everything for the sake of the coming kingdom of God. He hung on a cross. He died a horrible death. Because reclaiming his kingdom was more important than life itself. 
And until you and I reach that point in our lives where the return of the king is the most important thing to us, where reclaiming his kingdom here on this earth is more important than the stuff of this world, where ushering in the kingdom of God and seeing him as Lord is more important than life itself. Until we reach that day, we will continue to hold back the coming of the king. Because when you and I refuse to serve, when you and I refuse to sacrifice, we're walking away from the front lines. We're leaving the spiritual battle. We are laying down our kingdom weapons. And we're giving up. Leaving the fight for someone else. Waving the white flag. And accepting the imposter king for ourselves. You know, as warm and fuzzy as Christmas has become, you and I need to recognize that the arrival of Jesus Christ signaled the coming of a different kind of kingdom. And the truth is, Satan's not going down without a fight. He's going to hold on as tight as he can. Satan is not going to simply step back and say, Oh yeah, Jesus, you're the rightful king. Of course, let me just step away. Let me just give you this earth. Let me just give you this creation. Let me just give you all these people, all these hearts, because they really belong to you. No. Like Herod, he's ready to fight. He's ready to defend his position and he'll do anything he can to hold on to his illegitimate power over you. And so now today, because of Christmas, every heart is a battlefield. Every school is a battlefield. Every office and every factory is a battlefield. Every neighborhood, the neighborhood you live in is a battlefield. Every single square inch of this earth every single soul breathing air right now rightfully belongs to God and he's come to reclaim it for himself and to perfect it again and that's going to take a battle is that a battle you're willing to fight you know at the end of the Lord's prayer we, we say a line that really we're, we're saying in many ways for ourselves. We pray the line, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray that line, we're really asking God. We're saying, God, give, us, give me the courage to pick up the weapons of your kingdom. Right? Give me the courage to step onto the front line. Your kingdom come. Give me the courage. God's kingdom doesn't come with us passively sitting by. God has said my kingdom will come through you. So we're saying, God, give me the courage to step to that front line with a weapon of service, with a weapon of sacrifice. You Make your kingdom come through me. Make me your spy. Make me your subversive agent 
sabotaging Satan's kingdom, sabotaging the kingdoms of this world and ushering in the kingdom of God. I will stand for the kingdom of God and I will be subversive through service, through sacrifice for your purposes. Do we really believe that? Do we really want that? Are you really willing to pick up those weapons and take a stand for this king and for this kingdom? If you are, if that's truly your desire, if you're ready to let God give you a heart and a life that is eager for service and sacrifice, if you are eager to see the kingdom of God come and willing to be a part, willing to step on the front lines, then I invite you to pray the words of the Lord's Prayer together with me and to recognize as you say it the power of his kingdom coming through you and through me. So would you stand with me where you are? Please stand. And would you pray this prayer with me together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father God, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. And we ask that you would deliver us from the imposter king that has come to break us, to harm us, to destroy us. We confess that that king has often tempted us. He tempts us so well with the things of this world to make us forget you, to make us desire our own kingdom instead of yours. Forgive us when we fall into his trap. Father, give us the courage to stand for your kingdom. Give us the passion for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done. We know because of your death and resurrection, Jesus, that the ultimate victory is sealed and we celebrate that. We are so grateful that the victory is ours and yet the battle continues. Give us the strength we need to be faithful, to be strong, and to see your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Worship team, would you come join me up front, please? God continually makes the old new again as we prayed earlier.